Okay, people. Uh, I'm going to read the, the last part of John chapter 20. Uh, the story about what happened, as it were, yesterday. Uh, what happened the Sunday after Resurrection Day. Uh, it's just um, a short story about Thomas. So I'm going to read it. Uh, and then we'll have a moment's quiet. And then I'm going to read it again. Um, and then we'll have a moment's quiet. And then you can tell me anything that, as it were, you hear that speaks to you in it. So John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet I've come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that through believing you may have life in his name. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord! But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. <coughs> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Comments? Reactions? Things that says to you? Mm-hmm. We get the purpose of the book at the very end. We get the purpose of the book? Why did we bother to read this book? Oh, now I understand. Right, yeah. Luke tells you at the beginning of his book what his purpose is, John tells you at the end of his. Mm -hmm. I kind of find Thomas comforting. Mm. He kind of gets a bad mm. rap about mm. being a doubter. Mm. Um, I wonder if I would have. Mm. But mm. Um, you've got this guy who refused to believe initially. He wasn't just swayed at first, mm. but then came to believe later mm. after another form of evidence showed up. Mm. Yeah. And he didn't even, or at least doesn't say, he actually touched Jesus. That's right. That, no, no, that's right. I think that's significant, that, that he doesn't actually need to do the thing that he says, he insists on doing, yeah. And he ends up, I mean, having been the great doubter, as it were, five minutes ago, he ends up with the most spectacular confession of Jesus um, that you get in the Gospels in saying, my Lord and my God. The school of psychology are the heretics. The school of theology are the liberals. The school of intercultural studies are the conservatives. I wonder if uh, the school of psychology people can be the Thomases. In a way, I just wonder if, uh, just because of how we we are being trained, that we 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 also look for evidence in things beyond just belief or beyond just. Uh, like declaration. Sometimes when we talk of integration, we talk about where is God in the therapy room? Where is the healing power of God? Where is the movement of the Holy Spirit? We want to see. We want to see the evidence. <laughs> just, that's just mm, how. Mm, mm, Although I'm not saying we're heretics. No, I always think that psychology students are less inclined to be heretics, that theology students are more inclined to be heretics, <laughs> as your comment about liberals indicates. Um, but, uh, so, but it's, so it's more, psych students are empiricists, um, 
or doubters, according to which... Um, <laughs> yeah, I think empiricist is a less um, insulting word than doubters, isn't it? Yes. Theology students are heretics. Uh, SIS students are conservatives. Psych students are empiricists. Hmm. As I read that, it reminded me of um, uh, uh, the, another passage that we read in church yesterday, the beginning of um, 1 John, John's first letter. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands <coughs> concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we've seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, the, the sharing, we, we, don't, we, we haven't seen um, Jesus. We are in the position uh, of those for whom that gospel is written. Um, and, and thus the, the sharing by the people who wrote the gospel, well, the people who told the gospel stories, and then the people who wrote the gospels, and then they pa passed them on, and so on, and so on, and so on down the centuries. Uh, a neat thing about that being the process whereby we come to faith in Christ um, is that it generates fellowship. Uh, we have fellowship with other Christian generations and with the guys who wrote the gospels and whatnot, because they are the ones upon whom our uh, knowledge of Christ depends. Uh, we will sing There is a Redeemer There is a Redeemer Jesus God's own Son Precious Lamb of God Messiah Holy One Thank you Son, and leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. Jesus, my Redeemer, name above all names, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Oh, for sinners slain. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. When I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son, and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth 
is done. Gracious God, we thank you for that mercy and grace uh, of Jesus's that was prepared to uh, meet Thomas's conditions and not to reject him because he insisted on being empiricist. And we thank you that you meet us where we are. We thank you for those people who wrote down those stories so that we could uh, know the truth about Jesus and come to believe on his name. And we pray that as we think again about how that came to be and what it signifies with regard to scripture, that you'll illumine our minds and hearts and give us grace to say, my Lord and my God, uh, and to live on the basis of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we look forward to having some of you come to eat scones in our house tonight. Um, as we speak, Christine, Anne's caretaker, is making scones. Um, I have commissioned them. She will make them. Um, she's um, she, uh, Christine, who you'll, you'll meet tonight, who's very shy and doesn't like me uh, making a fuss about her. Um, but sometimes I do anyway and say, you know... I won't do it now, I'll tell it to you. I won't do it when we're there. But you can, when you see Christine, you can say, oh, thank you very much for making the scones. And if you've got one in your mouth before she leaves, you can say, oh, how terrific. Uh, Christine is a Chinese Filipino, Chinese Filipino. And she was taught to make these scones by uh, an, an ethnic Filipino who was taught to make scones by a Kenyan who was taught to make scones uh, by an Indonesian who was taught to make, make, taught to make the scones by Anne. So they are very international scones uh, that you will eat. Um, to my embarrassment, I discover that the account of how to get our house on page 33 has a fatal mistake uh, in what it says. The, the instructions at the beginning of the um, syllabus are okay. <coughs> but if you follow the, the directions on page 33, you'll never get there. Uh, because it says, well... Drive west to the end of Walnut, that's okay. Turn left onto Orange Grove, Boule Orange Grove Boulevard, that's okay. Cross the freeway. And then it says, turn left into Green Street. And it should say, turn right into Green Street. That's kind of, you know, 180 degrees wrong. Um, uh, yeah, so you turn right into Green Street and park there. And our front door, as it says, is at the southwest corner of Green and Orange Grove. Um, so at 9.20, I shall rush off, rush off on my bicycle um, and uh, make the tea and we shall look forward to seeing some of you to come and drink it. It's all decaffeinated, so don't worry about it. Um, I used to offer people the option of either regular or decaffeinated tea, uh, and one night I gave everybody who wanted regular decaf, which didn't matter too much, but I gave everybody who wanted decaf regular, which did matter, um, and I knew because I drank three cups of what I thought was decaffeinated. Uh, I knew what I spent the night doing, as it were. <laughs> So, uh, since then, uh, I give everybody decaf, and then I can't make a mistake. Unless I give everybody... No, don't think about it. No, no. Uh, the authority of Scripture. Page... To change the subject. Um, page 34 is the kind of... Out, just the, the basic outline for, uh, 
for what I'm going to do before uh, the break. Um, we are uh, used to the notion of the authority of Scripture being a very important notion to us. We talk a lot about the authority of Scripture. Uh, and it always kind of amuses me that that, that expression doesn't come in Scripture. Um, that, that the Scriptures are quite used to the idea of authority uh, in a way that I'll talk about again uh, a little bit more in a minute. And so it would have been quite possible for the New Testament to talk about the authority of the Old Testament, the authority of the Scriptures. Um, and it's uh, strange that it didn't do that, or at least it would seem to us strange that it, wouldn't, that it didn't do that. But I think one of the things that that reflects uh, is that the idea of the authority of Scripture is one that would have been um, taken for granted. There would have been no question among Jews in New Testament times that the Scriptures of the Old Testament had authority. It wasn't the kind of thing you needed to argue about. Uh, Jesus, um, Pharisees, and so on, disciples, had discussions and arguments about all sorts of things. But they never had to argue about the authority of Scripture because it was something that everybody accepted. Uh, and it's only in the modern period when the question um, of authority came to be uh, an issue that the idea of the authority of Scripture needed to be talked about systematically. Um, and that was particularly so uh, after the Reformation um, because the Reformation depended upon an assertion of the authority of Scripture um, over against the authority uh, of the church and then later on in uh, discussions within Christian faith uh, over against the authority of, um, of reason. But, uh, but in particular in the Reformation period, one of the things that the Reformation was about was an assertion of the authority of Scripture. Uh, to use the phrase that, um, uh, that was used, that Christian faith um, was, based on, was based sola scriptura, on Scripture alone. Um, and, and that Scripture could be its own interpreter, um, Luther said. Uh, the, the authority of Scripture was the thing that decided the nature of Christian faith. Uh, and the, uh, the church, uh, in, as an institution, wasn't entitled to claim um, an authority of its own uh, as an entity itself. It was subordinate to the authority of Scripture. Now, that's been an important principle, but also topic of debate over the past 400 years, um, and, and hence the importance of the notion of the authority of Scripture um, in debate over the last 400 years. But it's worth seeing, worth noting, the significance of the fact that, that the Scriptures themselves don't talk in those terms. Uh, and that wasn't because they didn't have a notion of authority, um, as, uh, as I mentioned uh, to, at the, in the beginning of the course, there are a couple of passages in Matthew's Gospel uh, that illustrate neatly alongside each other the two um, forms of the idea of authority, which you can then apply to Scripture, and which I think um, work out the implications of the kind of things that Scripture does say, even though Scripture itself doesn't apply them that way. Uh, I'll talk some more in a minute about the way in which the New Testament uh, uses the expression it is written with regard to the Old Testament. And that's a way of talking about its authority. If you say something is written, it's there, you've got to obey it. You've got to accept its authority. So um, the, the idea of authority is there, uh, and that's significant. But the fact that the words uh, authority of Scripture don't come is also significant because it reminds us of how all the debates about theology are contextual. 
they're all done in contexts. Um, and uh, and it's, in that, uh, it's in the period since the Reformation and in the course of the Enlightenment uh, and over relationships between churches that the notion of the authority of Scripture came to be um, significant. Two notions then of authority suggested uh, by uh, the way that the Sermon on the Mount ends um, and by what then immediately follows. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now there, um, authority denotes a quality that's intrinsic in a person. Something that other people acknowledge on the basis of their own recognition of the person, their own recognition of the person's words. They aren't required to acknowledge it by some external um, constraint or some institutional constraint. There was nobody that told the crowds that they'd got to accept Jesus' authority. He didn't have that kind of authority. He hadn't been to seminary. He had no MDiv. Still less did he have a psych D. That would have been interesting, wouldn't it, Jesus? No, 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 no. And you can see Jesus operating with that kind of authority throughout his ministry. He says to the disciples, well, they aren't yet disciples, he, said to some, he says, says to some fishing guys, follow me. And they do. There's no reason why um, they should do that, but he has a kind of authority about him. He has an authority about him as a person, and he has, there's an authority about the kind of things that he says. So that when you've got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and you've, said he, you've heard him putting together all this collection of outrageous things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount, um, you say, yeah, we've got to accept that. There's, um, I, I hadn't thought of that before. I've not heard somebody put together like that what it would mean to follow God, to follow God but I've heard him say that, and I've got to admit that it's true. I've got to, grant, got to accept it. He speaks with authority. But, but the way that the, the word authority is then used coincidentally um, in the passage that immediately follows, uh, it's got a different sort of meaning. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, having given the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, uh, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I'll come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. Now, the, the centurion is a man who knows about authority. Authority came into the um, story about the, the leper, the man with the skin disease. Uh, Jesus manifested an authority when he says, uh, be made clean, uh, and the man's leprosy uh, was cleansed. But there's a different sort of authority than that the centurion talks about. The centurion um, knows about an authority uh, that is something extrinsic to the person and that derives um, from his or her office. 
uh, when you uh, agree to do something because the person who says uh, what you have to do um, tells you. Now, I think I told you the other week about um, uh, the, the policeman flashing behind me on the 10 uh, and telling me to draw, go in the side and stop and all that. And I did it. Now, supposing it were the case that I was actually driving uh, innocently at 64 miles an hour and he'd got the wrong vehicle. I would have been very unwise to ignore him. Um, he still has, the, not only unwise, but it, it is still kind of part of my community commitment that when the policeman tells you to do something, you do it. Uh, the policeman has authority that derives from his office. Um, and uh, so the centurion is talking about that kind of authority when he speaks uh, about the position he's in. He's got people on top of him who can give him orders. He's got people below him to whom he gives orders. Uh, Jesus, um, the centurion, compares the intrinsic authority that Jesus has over disease, <coughs> over illness, with the extrinsic authority that the centurion himself possesses. He's a man under authority. He expects his subordinates to obey him unquestioningly, as he, just as he obeys his superiors. That's how um, authority works uh, in that context. Uh, it's a very different sort of understanding of authority from the one that Matthew's Gospel has talked about when it's described people's reaction to Jesus uh, at the end of the sermon. Uh, now, uh, the, the usefulness of those passages next door to each other uh, is, it seems to me, that, they, uh, that, that although they don't talk about Scripture having either of those two forms of authority, it does have those two forms of authority. Uh, and, and it has them, I think, significantly in that order. And for that matter, Jesus himself has them in that order. That is, first of all, Jesus has um, an authority that's intrinsic in who he is, and that's intrinsic in what he says, so that when he says something, you say to yourself, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that, but it makes sense. I've got to accept that. Uh, though it will be the case from time to time, uh, I guess for the disciples, I think there are probably examples and probably for us, that Jesus will then go on and say outrageous things that you don't like. Uh, and you'd like to say, no, I think Jesus was wrong there. But you probably don't do that. Well, maybe you do, but I personally don't. It seems to me to be a bit risky. I was interested in the, um, we'll come back in, come after the break to people who were very worried by the guy who got um, executed for um, his, what he did on the Sabbath. Um, well, you can, you know, you, if you disobey, you could be in deep trouble. Um, I, uh, when, when we think about acknowledging Jesus as Lord, acknowledging the authority of Jesus, uh, we probably assume that that applies uh, in the whole of what he says, so that when he's, when he, given that he demonstrates authority, something that we can't avoid, something we're bound to accept in a lot of areas, when he, there's some, when he, there's, when he then says something which seems outrageous, we accept it on the basis of, his, um, of that intrinsic authority of his. So that he moves from having the intrinsic, uh, an authority that is based in the things that he says to a kind of in, uh, ex extrinsic authority that applies to everything he says because we've recognised that we have to accept all of it. And I think something, is true, something similar is true about Scripture. Um, that if it wasn't the case that Scripture had um, a kind of compellingness about it a lot of the time, then you wouldn't accept it. 
Uh, if, it, uh, if scripture all the time was telling you to believe ten impossible things before breakfast um, and, uh, and, and wasn't giving you um, a basis for responding to them, but only, I'll hit you over the head if you don't accept it, well, I think the whole thing wouldn't work. Um, but the fact that, that scripture tells us a gospel that um, claims us, uh, that we can't help but respond to, that it has that intrinsic authority about it, um, then carries as a kind of consequence of it that when it says things that seem outrageous, like telling you about the guy who got killed for um, uh, what he did on the Sabbath, uh, then uh, you, you know that you've got to deal with that somehow. You know you can't, you can't simply pick and choose the bits you'll accept uh, and the bits that you won't accept because the, uh, the first kind of authority carries over the whole. At least that's, that's how it seems to me, um, seems to, me to be. So that, those two ideas of authority, the idea of an, an authority that's intrinsic in the person and what he says or the book and what it says, and a, a sort of legal authority, an, extrin an extrinsic authority, um, aren't totally separate. They, they kind of run into each other. You can see Jesus operating with, that, um, with an attitude uh, that says he accepts the authority of the scriptures and that he accepts the authority of the scriptures in that second kind of way. Um, uh, they, they have some um, authority over him. Uh, and the, uh, a passage just before the Sermon on the Mount um, illustra illustrates that neatly. Um, though some words that immediately precede chapter 4 uh, illustrate the other kind of authority. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Um, and the voice from heaven uh, quotes three phrases from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. Um, here's an extraordinary thing. Here's the Father talking to the Son at the moment when the Spirit comes to dwell uh, upon the Son. And the God the Father doesn't make up some words for the occasion, but he quotes from the scriptures. This is my Son, um, which is um, a quote from Psalm. Uh, my son, the, the beloved, uh, which is a phrase that comes from when uh, God commissions Abraham to go and offer Isaac. With whom I'm well pleased is a phrase that describes God's servant in Isaiah 42. Uh, there's uh, such a kind of intrinsic authority about the scriptures that even God um, can't help but use the phrases from the scriptures in speaking to his son at the moment uh, when the Spirit of God descends upon his son. Then, when Jesus goes out into the wilderness um, to be tempted by the devil, uh, in that extraordinary verse that always, it seems to me to be one of the most astonishing verses in scripture, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I always, I get to the end of that sentence and I have to go back to the beginning and... Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's weird. Uh, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, the devil makes another suggestion. 
uh, and this time the devil himself quotes scripture. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, see the devil can play that game as well. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus is willing to play text throwing with the devil. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Um, here is Jesus being given three suggestions of greater or lesser plausibility that will establish whether he will uh, put into effect um, his commitment to walk God's way. He could satisfy his hunger by turning um, stones into bread. It's reasonable enough to use your gifts uh, to meet your personal needs. Uh, you need to do that maybe if you're to be able to go on and meet the needs of others. Why not throw himself from the top of the temple building and trust in God to preserve him in a spectacular way? Psalm 91 promises protection um, to the person who's in that special relationship with God. Or why shouldn't Jesus um, take hold of the sovereignty and honour in the world that is due to him by submitting to the devil? That, that sovereignty and honour are due to him in due course anyway. But Jesus refuses all three of those possibilities. And to each response, it is written, it is written, it is written, uh, and quotes Deuteronomy. Uh, human beings are not dependent for life on mere physical food, but on God's word. Jesus must rely on that, rather than unilaterally um, using the powers available to him um, as the Son of God. He's not to uh, test whether God will fulfill promises of protection, but to trust God um, to do that when the moment requires it. He's to worship and serve the Lord alone. Uh, it can't be right to ignore that fundamental principle, uh, even to gain the worldwide authority and honour that do ultimately belong to him. It is written, he says, and that settles it. Uh, it's a phrase, that phrase it is written, is one that um, comes quite often uh, in the Old Testament itself uh, in order to indicate um, how people did do what the Torah said, or how they should do what the Torah said. Uh, Jesus actually takes his partic these particular um, sets of instructions uh, from Deuteronomy chapters 5 to 11, which is a part of Deuteronomy that's describing the basic um, attitudes that, Jesus, uh, that, that Moses expects uh, of Israel as it keeps its side of the covenant relationship. Um, Jesus presupposes that his life should be shaped by those um, authoritative statements of God's um, that were given to Israel. Uh, and on the way along, he's able to, he shows how he's able to discern the difference between um, good use of Scripture and abuse of Scripture. Because uh, the devil does appeal to Scripture in the same way as Jesus does. Um, uh, and uh, thereby shows um, that you can um, prove anything from the Bible if you're, uh, if you're careful enough at it. Uh, that the Bible can be a tool for oppression as well as a tool for liberation. Especially when people claim it's authoritative, claim it's authority. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a common saying, or there used to be a common saying in South Africa, 
um, when the white man came to our country, he had the Bible and we had the land. The white man said to us, let us pray. After the prayer, the white man had the land and we had the Bible. Uh, appealing to scripture can be something that's uh, self-serving, can be demonic. Um, and uh, the devil is self-serving in the way that he uses scripture. So how can you tell the difference? It's worth noting that the way that the devil uses scripture is, is entirely Christ-centered. So being Christ-centered doesn't prevent abuse of scripture. Um, Maybe his use of scripture needs to be more God-centered, because that's what Jesus' use of scripture is. Um, Jesus talks about submitting to God's word, um, worshipping God's name, trusting in God's promises. But also what Jesus does is take the central and clear um, direct statements of Deuteronomy um, and um, refuse a kind of reapplication of the scripture, which is what the devil's uh, words use. Um, there are direct assertions of scripture that go against the notion of testing um, and so what the devil is using what the devil is, do, is, is, is doing is applying Psalm 91 uh, in a way that isn't directly what Psalm 91 says uh, and it's, the question, its questionability is demonstrated by the way it clashes uh, with uh, what Deuteronomy says um, it's also uh, certainly striking that, de that the devil is able to do that by taking the verses in Psalm 91 out of their context within the psalm. Uh, because the psalm isn't about um, doing things that are um, adventurous and maybe irresponsible. Um, it's, it's about how you cope with the situation when you are put under pressure, not when you take risks uh, for yourselves. For yourself. So... Uh, Jesus uh, takes a stance in relation to the devil's um, suggestions uh, which accepts the authority of scripture uh, and what he's doing in that particular passage is one that um, runs through the way that he operates. Uh, Ed Sanders, uh, who is uh, a contemporary uh, New Testament scholar, uh, comments, the synoptic Jesus lived as a law-abiding Jew. Um, and he um, expands on that saying, like other Jews, Jesus saw love for God and love for one's neighbor as summaries of the two chief concerns of the Torah itself. Uh, like other Jews, he attended the synagogue um, and took part in the listening to scripture there. Like other Jews, he avoided actual work on the Sabbath. We'll come in the second half tonight about uh, the question about healing on the Sabbath. Uh, like other Jews, he sought to settle um, disputes about what was right uh, by discussing biblical interpretation. Um, he was prepared to be creative and independent in his, in his interpretation of scripture, but he didn't thrust the scriptures to one side. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann again, who you know is a bad guy, um, declared that Jesus always agreed with the scribes of his time in accepting without question the authority of the Old Testament law. He expected uh, there to be new depths to discern uh, in the Torah. He built his own teaching on the foundation um, of the scriptures. But he assumed that they spoke with God's authority. 
They were not God's last word. He was prepared to say, but I say to you. But they were God's first word. Um, Again, George Caird in his commentary on Luke's Gospel, Jesus puts himself under the authority of Scripture and so under the authority of God. The principle then of um, working with the authority of Scripture is one that runs through Jesus' own life. In his own, in his time, uh, but more so in ours, the question then arises about the relationship between Scripture and other possible uh, authorities. And so um, I've um, listed those under that heading, Scripture and other, and other authorities, on the sheet. Because uh, Christian life and thinking are shaped by other things than, uh, than Scripture. And those include uh, the church and its tradition, uh, human reason and secular thought, human experience, religious experience, and other kinds of experience, um, and the commitments we make. Uh, and in principle, the fact that our thinking is shaped by other things in Scripture, um, that's not something to be regretted, it's not something to be feared, not something to be fought. Um, as long as we don't pretend that it isn't the case, it's when you don't acknowledge that's the case that you can get into trouble. Uh, but, but as I say, it's since the Reformation that uh, Christians have been more aware uh, of this um, multiform shaping of us uh, uh, and aware of that as, as a problem and not just as a kind of richness. Realising more clearly uh, that the church's resources um, can um, and, and do come into conflict. The question then is, what's the relationship between the role or the status of Scripture and the role or the status of tradition and reason and our experience and our commitments. First tradition. Uh, I've talked about this, the, the, um, the narratives in scripture as a witnessing tradition. And the, the tradition uh, about the nature of the gospel, originally um, oral but then written down, that's fundamental to the nature of scripture itself. Um, but the people who appear in the scriptures and who wrote them imply that broader traditions and post-biblical traditions can also have positive value, even though they are capable of, of perverting the scriptures. Um, the, the New Testament understands Jesus on the basis of ways of thinking and approaches to interpretation uh, that are developed from the scriptures over the years. Uh, they don't just... Uh, the, the New Testament doesn't just quote the Old Testament neat. It quotes the Old Testament in light of the tradition of its interpretation within the Jewish community. And, and there's, there's thus, that shows how there's no necessary clash between Bible and tradition. One example of that is the very way in which the New Testament talks about the Messiah. Um, because the Old Testament itself ne doesn't talk about the, uh, about the Messiah in the sense of using the word Messiah to describe a future Redeemer. Uh, the guys in the New Testament um, do talk that way uh, and assume it's okay and nobody questions it. It's a, tra it's a tradition of Jewish interpretation that's developed um, post the scriptures, post the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. There's no necessary clash between the Bible um, and tradition, a tradition of interpretation. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament begin as tradition in the form of narrative but also in other forms. Um, the words of the prophets are passed down 
orally, passed down as a tradition, uh, before they're written down. When the church established a, a canon of scripture, a collection of scriptures, uh, it did that uh, not in order to um, safeguard the truth against tradition, but to safeguard authentic tradition over against um, things that were too new or things that were twisted. There are then at least three ways that the um, church and its tradition continue to shape Christian attitudes. One is that there have been claims for um, the authority of a body of tradition that's separate from Scripture and that gives you some separate access to the teaching of the apostles. Um, and in the context of the Reformation, when these kind of debates started between the Reformers um, and um, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Council of Trent made that claim to having a kind of direct line of tradition back to the apostles independently of scripture. Um, and it's against that background uh, that churches made uh, statements, the Protestant churches made, sta made statements like Holy, script Holy Scripture contains all things that are necessary for salvation or made the statement about scripture alone, sola scriptura. There's no body of tradition uh, separate from scripture uh, that can sustain a claim to mediate um, the truth that goes back to the apostles. So that's one kind of notion of tradition. Uh, second, uh, the, the shape of Christian faith and the shape of Christian worship is influenced by a doctrinal tradition that's embodied in the creeds um, and that's uh, expressed in what, what was called the rule of the faith. Uh, in the time of the second and third centuries, uh, then uh, there was uh, a, a kind of succinct expression of what the gospel was, what the truth was, uh, which is expressed in the, in the creeds that are used in some churches nowadays. That's not, then, a tradition that's separate um, from Scripture, a kind of parallel to Scripture. It's more a guide for interpreting Scripture. It's something that uh, is reckoned to be uh, a crystallization of the central thread of Scripture a means of ensuring that the church keeps um, to the apostolic faith. And in practice, we, we all work with um, a, a kind of outline map, an outline of what the gospel is, what the Christian faith is. There can come, then come to be uh, tricky questions about the nature of the relationship, though, between the rule of the faith or the creeds um, and the scriptures. Is it possible for the rule of the faith or the scripture or the, or the creeds to dictate what scripture is allowed to say? That must surely be wrong. Uh, it's the scriptures that are the scriptures. Uh, but if you reckon that the rule of the faith that the church had been sticking by uh, for a millennium or two had got it wrong, well, you'd need to think long and hard about whether that was so. That's the second meaning of tradition. A third kind of tradition is traditions um, that the church developed over the years that shape Christian attitudes and practices. Uh, the kind of thing, if you like, that the Holy Spirit inspired people in after New Testament times. The church accumulated beliefs and customs and practices that didn't come from Scripture, uh, but were part of the Spirit's guidance of it, or at least might have been that. Another one that we'll need to think about a bit later on this evening 
is the way in which the church came to observe Sunday in a way that was partly parallel to Jewish observance of the Sabbath. Now that's something you can't find out of the, out of the Bible. It's a piece of tradition. Uh, or the church came to have churches. There were no churches in the sense of um, dedicated buildings uh, in the New Testament. Um, but uh, the church came to dedicate particular buildings to, to worship in a way that was partly parallel to the Jewish temple and partly parallel to the synagogue. The church developed uh, orders of ministry, bishops and priests and deacons, senior pastors, youth pastors. Uh, and that, that traditional pattern of bishops and priests and deacons uh, was partly parallel to the Jewish institution of high priest and priest and Levite. Um, and uh, even if you don't have bishops and priests and deacons, then you quite likely do have um, in your own church the, the assumption that you centre the leadership in a local congregation um, in one person, probably one man, um, who is employed full-time and is paid to fulfil um, this task as his profession. Uh, now, there's none of that in the Bible, but it's uh, come to be a normal Christian tradition. None of those features of church life uh, appear in any of the churches that are um, described in the New Testament. They're part of the church's tradition, part of the way that it believed the Holy Spirit led it uh, in post-New Testament times. And we need to recognise that those aspects of church life are traditions um, and um, be careful about honouring them as if they were something straight out of Scripture. Uh, and we need to ask questions about whether our traditions do conflict with Scripture. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the idea that one person has that supreme authority in a congregation is, is unscriptural. Uh, but I'm weird. I'm a heretic too because I'm in the School of Theology. Um, and I'm certainly liberal because I'm in the School of Theology. I don't, uh, not only is it, I think it's no coincidence that you can't find in New Testament churches a church that was, that was um, presided over by one person. Um, because the New Testament assumes that there's something about diffusion of authority uh, and power in the church that would be in conflict with that. But, but the church found that difficult to live with, and churches went off the rails. Um, and so they started having one person in charge in order to have some authority. And then that person went off the rails. Then you're in a mess. If we, if we discover that scripture contradicts our traditions, we're faced with the question um, of which of them to follow. Um, Second uh, authority that I've listed there on the sheet is human reason and secular thought. Uh, scripture uh, recognises that human uh, insight can go wrong, but it also shows an unselfconscious confidence in human insight. Uh, the wisdom books um, are the great empirical books. Um, that's partly why we do the uh, writings as the course that um, school of theology, school of psychology students do. <coughs> Um, but uh, that, that confidence of an, of an author like Luke um, in the way he goes about describing how he wrote his gospel um, also illustrates that confidence in human insight. 
Since many have undertaken to set down to an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I thought I could do that. So I did it. So here it is. Uh, Luke, like a wisdom writer in the Old Testament, is confident about what he can do. The discoveries of human thinking, the discoveries of empirical science and of secular thought in general, have a significant influence on the Christian church. Um, <clears throat> the study of humanity and of the world in which we live generates insights that shape our thinking in a variety of ways. And obviously, um, the discipline that you're involved in um, is a great example of that. Um, secular psychological and counselling theory and practice um, has transformed aspects of the church's theory and practice with regard to ministry over the past um, 30 or 50 years. Um, again, the question is then, what's the relationship between the kind of things that you discover empirically in that way and the kind of things that you find in Scripture? Uh, and that's the um, question that's raised by at least um, by the people who talk about biblical counselling um, and who are opposed to the assumptions that underlie the way that your program works. Um, because um, they reckon that uh, the kind of program that you're involved in uh, is starting much too much from purely secular thinking uh, and isn't utilising the biblical material on counselling um, and, and isn't uh, utilising the nature of the gospel itself uh, in the way in which it thinks about psychology and counselling. Um, the uh, model for the kind of process that you're involved in seems to me to be the one that's provided um, by the uh, wisdom books in the Old Testament. And the beginning of Proverbs gives a, a neat illustration of how that works. These Proverbs are for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing. And that's all what any um, ancient Near Eastern wisdom would seek to do. But then Proverbs adds righteousness, justice and equity. Then he goes back to the empirical. To teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young, let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then it goes to, reverence for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I love the way in which there, uh, it talks in just the way in which any wisdom books would talk, until it interpolates uh, those references to ethics and faith. It's instruction in wise dealing, but it's also righteousness, justice and equity. It's the words of the wise and their riddles, but it's then reverence for Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's quite happy in what follows to learn from the empirical, from empirical experience within Israel, and also to learn from other people's wisdom books. But it knows that they have to be that, that the both of those have to be taken through the sieve of what's suggested by the principle that reverence for Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, um, and uh, that true wisdom takes account of righteousness, justice, and equity. So what it does is set, well, to put it in our terms, what it does is set secular thinking into the context of ethics, 
and the context um, of uh, a recognition of who God is. Um, and allow for the way in which that, ha- that, re- that needs to reframe what you discover purely empirically. And if you do that, then you don't have to um, go to the other extreme that the biblical counselling uh, movement uh, takes in saying, you mustn't have anything to do with that secular counselling stuff. And one of its um, bits of criticism, a bit of, um, uh, of J. Adams' crit- critique was that a problem with, with um, uh, Christian approaches to counselling that are based on secular counselling is that they rely on the general revelation, revelation defence. He's dead right. They do rely on the general revelation defence, and it's a good defence. Um, that is, uh, they uh, rely, your, the pre- a presupposition of your kind of course is that God does reveal things in the world, that the world is God's, there are things to be discovered by means of science and so on, and that's part of general revelation. Uh, and, and so w- we, are, we are not confined to special revelation, to what you find in scripture. We also do have general revelation, what you find out there in the world empirically. We're not confined to, um, to, to special revelation, but nor are we confined to general revelation. And both of those are important. The tricky question is holding the two of them together. Um, and uh, the, the, there are key things about the nature of God and the nature of humanity that you're only going to discover from Scripture so that one needs to take the empirical, the general revelation stuff, um, and reframe it in light of what you discover in Scripture in order for um, human reason um, and secular thought to have its proper place. The third alternative authority is human experience. Both Testaments uh, assume that people not only learn of God from Scripture, but they also have direct experiences of God. Um, all human, for all human beings... Um, their own experience, their religious experience, and their other kinds of experience exercises a significant influence on them. And in our culture, that's more so than ever. Uh, If there was um, one thing that I'm going to follow, it's my own experience. So, um, whereas it was once the case that tradition was the great threat, as it were, to the authority of Scripture, and then it was the case that reason was the great threat to the authority of Scripture, you could probably say that in our culture, um, experience has replaced uh, reason as Scripture's chief theological rival. Experiencing things for ourselves seems the supreme or the only way uh, to guarantee their reality. Carl Rogers, experience is for me the highest authority. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. Um, Subjective certainty is a more assured and a more promising starting point than anything external to ourselves. Uh, Robert Bellar um, characterised the basic American attitude towards life as expressive individualism, which holds, he says, that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realised. The good life is one rich in experience. The right act is one with the most exciting challenge or the best feeling. The key values are those intuitively and freely affirmed 
uh, by the choice of the individual. Um, experience of life is the primary text, um, some uh, liberation theologians reckon. So how, how does that relate then to scripture? Um, human experience, including Christian experience, is subjective, individualistic, restricted, and introspective. What scripture does is shape expectations and provide categories for experience. It provides a resource for critical reflection on experience. Some religious experience and other kind of experiences um, take racist and sexist forms that are in conflict with Christian uh, affirmations about love and justice. So we bring our experience to scripture in order to have it reframed again and disciplined. Um, as uh, Walter Brueggemann put it uh, with regard to um, the Psalms, we bring our experiences to Scripture uh, in order that it may be disciplined by the speech of the Psalms so that they have the chance to reshape our sensitivities. While we do interpret Scripture in light of our, our experience, at least as importantly... Uh, we seek to have our experience conformed to the experience of which Scripture speaks. Uh, final other authority is the commitments that we make. The person who is willing to do God's will will know of the teaching whether it is of God or not. It's Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 17. If we present ourselves to God, uh, then we'll come to discover what God's will is says Paul in Romans 12. Now we think of it the other way around. You, I'll, you tell me what your will is, God, and then I'll decide whether or not to do it. Uh, Paul assumes, rather, first of all you commit yourself to doing God's will, then you'll discover what it is. That's risky! Uh, it is the case that our commitments, the vested interests that we've got, commitments we're prepared to make, um, have a big influence on us, on what we see. Um, actions may sometimes appear to be so clearly right that they carry uh, a self-evident justification. Um, but that's because we don't actually come to them with an empty head and an empty heart. We come to them with a set of assumptions about God and the world and truth and life. Uh, and while it's just possible that our assumptions may be shaped by Scripture, it's more likely that they're shaped by our culture. Um, and so uh, the, what, what we are called to is what liberation theology calls critical reflection on praxis in the light of the word. Um, that is, we come, if we think we've got certain commitments, then we come back and ask, well, what does Scripture say about that? So that it isn't our commitments that have the final authority, but we let Scripture have some authority. Scripture is resource and norm for the way that we uh, think about things and for the, the things that we do. It's resource in, a sense, in the sense that it shapes us. It's then norm in the sense that we bring things back to it and ask um, uh, how, they, how they measure up to what Scripture's got to say. 
Uh, well, for five minutes or so, let's, ha let's have you discussing the questions that I've then put at the bottom of page 34 there, or anything else in what I've said. Uh, in what areas do you think Christians unconsciously ignore Scripture's authority? What other authority are we most inclined to accept instead of Scripture, and why? What's the relative authority of Scripture and psychological theory? What aspects of Scripture's authority do you find it difficult to accept, and how do you handle that? Um, would you like to talk to the person next to you for a few minutes about that, and then we'll have some questions um, arising from that, or uh, arising from what you said at the beginning of the quarter? Okay, go.